Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. Um, justice not resolved. And she happened to have been a pretty girl from a wealthy family. There are many other young girls and young boys who perhaps don't come from wealth and, and, and what that brings. But nonetheless, it seemed that the advent of even uh, now was in 96, three cable news channels that were on 24 hours a day. AOL was in its earliest of uh, ages then, including, you know, 24-hour news coverage. And we have a pretty girl with a lot of videotape of her in beauty contests and all. That's a whole other part of the story that will be discussed, um, certainly in, the, uh, in our, in our four-hour special. So there's so many dynamics going on here uh, from a family perspective, from a societal perspective, and we have so many images of this young girl. It's not just one still shot taken in you know, her kindergarten class. And we almost feel, I think, to some degree um, that some of us know her. And having worked the case with the Boulder investigators, at least to some degree, back in, in the late 1990s, I certainly got to learn a lot more about her and all the participants, both you know, within the family and without. And, um, and the general public is going to learn even more about these folks uh, come this Sunday and Monday evening. As an expert, why do you think that this case remains unsolved? Um, probably because there were no experts on the scene that day. Um, and there were some dedicated police officers and prosecutors early on, but none of them really had this kind of an experience to work uh, of a homicide of this nature. And they went into it first, believing every word of the note, the, the three-page long note about 385 words of my Which, memory. Which, in the special, uh, they, you guys actually wrote that note, transcribed it, and it took almost 22 minutes. It did. Uh, we, we kind of exercised, did a little exercise among ourselves. Let's write this note out. All my years of working this case, I never thought of trying to write it out myself, but our uh, colleague, Laura Richards, came up with the idea, and we said, hey, let's give this a try. And it took us that long to do it, knowing exactly what we were writing. All we were doing was copying. Um, but for somebody to have to create this from scratch, so to speak, uh, knowing that something bad just sort of happened a little while ago and make up this fantastic story about beheading people and, and stray dogs and don't call the police. And what's the number again? Oh, yeah, $118,000. Which was so random considering how rich the family was. Well, it, it was random in one way, but very purposeful in another because that happened to be the bonus that John Ramsey received that year from his company. 
So, uh, but you're right. It was much, they could have had a million in cash the next day, and that would have been chump change uh, for a, for the return, the safe return of a young girl. So um, the, the, that amount was bizarre too. And we discussed that a little bit, uh, certainly uh, on the CBS special coming up. How did you come to be part of this? Well, I was part of the original case. I had just come off um, helping to solve the Unabom case back in 1995 and 96. And then um, I sort of was recognized in the FBI as the guy that has sort of a language expertise uh, in terms of looking at anonymous letters or pseudonymous notes, whatever. There weren't too many emails around back then. Some of you may not even remember back that far, but, uh, but it was mostly handwritten letters. So I helped with the case back then. I, I helped put some aspects to it together. Uh, there was so much resistance from prosecutors, from attorneys, and again, this, this, uh, this, the, the embryonic world of, uh, of, of social media, the internet, and there were bloggers all over the place. I'm not sure they were even called bloggers back then, quite frankly. But uh, if you dared come out and say something on one side or the other, you would be almost demonized, depending on what side that person stood for. So, but. A, but bringing up to date here, about a year ago, I'm good friends with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. Uh, they're in L.A. now. They have a production company. I'm a part of it. We sat around thinking of some things to do. And right, we're not even thinking of TV or, or, or documentaries or anything like that. We just said, what about the case of poor John Bonet? Is there some way we can come upon solving that case? The 20th anniversary of the Unabomber's arrest was coming up. And we said, that's an idea. And Jim and Laura really ran with it from that point. And they got uh, various production companies involved. CBS greenlighted it, and uh, they were very supportive. And um, we're here today, and uh, you know, waiting for the Sunday night's uh, premiere. What surprised you the most on the second go around when you revisited the case? Because I can tell you what surprised me, but and I think I already told you backstage that today, if you get arrested or there's you're a suspect in something, you are brought in and interviewed immediately by the police. The Ramses weren't interviewed for four months. I could not believe that in retrospect that that happened. Well, the, the Constitution hasn't changed then. If someone chose not to be interviewed in that particular situation, certainly the Fifth Amendment protects people from doing that. And they did, in fact, through their attorneys, invoke the Fifth Amendment, if not directly, indirectly, in not wishing to talk to the police. What we did find sort of odd is, though, within a, within one week of the little girl's death, they were on CNN giving an interview. And some people question them, if they're not going to talk to the police, why get involved with CNN? And then I think within a month or so after that, they're with Barbara Walters giving her an interview. And um, the law enforcement community was quite concerned about that. And Unfortunately, the best information they could get back then was from watching TV, and that's not how you want to run a criminal investigation. So they desperately wanted to talk to them, uh, and the only deal that the lawyers would say, well, you're only going to talk to John and Patsy together. No, you can't do that. You have to separate suspects or even witnesses to a crime. You don't want one witness tainting what the other witness is going to say. So you have to separate them. Even if everybody's a good guy, you're not even suspecting anybody. Um, the police knew back then, statistically speaking, most young children murdered, and this is an unfortunate statistic we all have to live with, there is usually someone within the family that is involved, or at least a direct connection to the family, a mother's boyfriend or you know, lover or something like that. So the police would have been remiss if they didn't at least say, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, we got to talk to you, we got to do it separately. 
but they kept putting off, putting off, and it wasn't until months later and a few TV interviews later that the police finally had their opportunity to talk to them. Of course, they each had a lawyer in the room, which was their their right. Um, but with so much time having elapsed at that point, quite frankly, from the interviews themselves, not a whole lot came out of them. Do you think the case, if handled differently, could have been solvable? Well, um, as you and uh, our viewers may know, I wear a few different hats. One is that of a criminal profiler, and the other that is, is that of a forensic linguist. And when I was brought into uh, the CBS documentary, they said, Jim, can you kind of keep your forensic linguist hat on today? And just real quick here, linguistics is the scientific study of language. And of course, forensic means applying the law to it. And so that's what I do. Uh, I actually went back to school and got a second master's degree from Georgetown University in linguistics. Thank you, Georgetown, who's ever back there. Uh, go Hoyas. And, um, and, but I didn't even have that yet when the Ramsey case first broke. And uh, so when they brought me into the special, I said, well, let me focus on the language aspects, the linguistic aspect, and we'll, we'll try to educate the audience on just how these crimes can be solved um, using an in-depth analysis of language. So I did some of it back in the early days. It was suggested we bring someone else in and we'll tell that little story um, you know, when the show airs. Um, but certainly going back years later, and I teach graduate courses uh, around right here in Hofstra University, anybody from Hofstra? Uh, and uh, Stockton College uh, University in, in New Jersey, as well as a few other schools in the US and around the world. And I always spend, I always want to plan to spend about 15 minutes on this case. I put the note up on the, uh, on the PowerPoint, and next thing you know, I'm an hour into it and say, students, we got to move ahead. And, but, but look, I can't believe they wrote that. Okay, so he's gibbering and jabbering on. What I'm going to do here is stop, and I'm going to find one more excerpt on uh, John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey matter of fact one on each one and then I will do my own dialogue on my feelings and thoughts and I will reveal to you my final conclusion of when uh, why and how uh, John Benet Ramsey Ramsey was murdered but over a period of time and there is a point where each person tells on himself Burke Ramsey bitch ass Patsy Ramsey's sorry ass and John Ramsey's punk ass he literally tells you out of his own mouth but nobody's listening they're so deep into trying to catch him lying they're not listening to him when he's telling the truth. And yes, it goes back to Linda Arndt, the detective that was in his house on the day that 
they found the dead body in the basement or wine cellar. So, this will be the preamble to my final thoughts. Tabloids still claim. This year, new shocking details were revealed. Here's the heartbreaking story of one of the world's most renowned vocalists. Discovering the phenomenon. The Houston family members were legendary figures in American gospel. Thus, Little Whitney also started singing at New Hope Baptist Church. It was clear from the start that her voice was phenomenal. By the time she turned 15, Whitney was often performing with her mother and trying to get a record deal of her own. Whitney became famous as a teenage model and even appeared on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Unfortunately, this successful image was appreciated only by the public. Inside her family, things were horrible. When Whitney's mom went on tour, she left Whitney and her brother, Gary, with a cousin, a gospel singer named Dee Dee Warwick. And what Houston's brother revealed in a recent 2018 documentary, Whitney, shocked the world. When their mother left for a tour, Warwick sexually molested Whitney and Gary. It happened when Whitney was just three or four years old. This incident created a psychological trauma that plagued Whitney for the rest of her life. This is what made Whitney so insistent on bringing her daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, on tour with her later on. Pop Diva Whitney almost immediately became a diva after she released her debut album, which was a sensation. Her wildest dreams came true, but being such a massive pop star came at a price. Every time she went out in public, Whitney had to act, look, and talk in a certain way. Every little thing she did was regulated by her strict contracts, and it took a great toll on her. That wasn't the real Whitney. Her identity slowly started to shatter. Success in the music business translated to the big screen, and for her first starring role in The Bodyguard, she virtually played herself. I Will Always Love You. The soundtrack's lead single was top of the charts for 14 weeks, making it one of the best-selling discs in history. But her identity crisis became more visible, and rumors about Whitney using hard drugs reached the press. It was a common thing for Whitney and her brothers to party, drink, and have a little drugs. Her brothers gave it to her just for fun. No one thought it would go so far. Still, she maintained a very strong image as a good girl, until she met her bad boy. Whitney met another icon of that time, singer Bobby Brown. He was known for his nasty behavior, troubles with the law, and for taking drugs. A lot of drugs. Tabloids were making bets that these two totally different people will split up within a couple of months. However, contrary to all expectations, within three years, Brown married Whitney Houston in one of the most highly publicized celebrity weddings in history. They were in love and very supportive of each other. Whitney and Bobby Brown were on relatively equal standing in their careers when they met. But Whitney's phenomenal success of The Bodyguard came as a bit of a knock to Bobby's self-esteem, especially when his own career was caught in crisis. Brown was arrested several times for drug use and drunk driving. Houston became a victim of domestic violence and once had to call the police to calm Brown down. This incident quickly spread to the press. More and more people started to refer to him rather as Whitney Houston's abusive husband than as an artist. 
During his years of marriage to Houston, Brown produced only one album, which was a commercial dud. The press declared that he was the reason for Whitney's depression and aggressive addiction to drugs. Nevertheless, Houston was always by his side. He was her personal drug that she could not and didn't want to quit. She was with him during all the court meetings and saw him as the love of her life. Despite all the rumors and insults surrounding the couple, Whitney and Bobby got pregnant. Parenthood The birth of Bobby Christina brought peace to the family and deeply changed Whitney. She promised herself to become a worthy mother and found strength to stop taking drugs. But not for long. The couple's demons destroyed them. Whitney's darkest period occurred. Nobody could police Whitney. She did what she wanted, her own sister-in-law, Tina Brown, reported. Whitney's addiction to cocaine was getting worse and worse, and it was ruining her ear. At every new public appearance, people reacted with one question. Is she high right now? Houston denied all accusations, but her lie was too obvious. Tragically, Brown's depression also got deeper, and it all had a fatal impact on their child. The little girl was living in terrible conditions, seeing her parents getting high right in front of her. In Brown's 2016 book, Every Little Step, he says he and Whitney failed their daughter, Bobby Christina, and often used drugs in their little girl's presence. Though family and public pressure forced Houston to go to rehab several times, her husband supported her while she was trying to get back on her feet. She was really working hard on herself to try and be a sober person, and she was a great woman last years. In constant attempts at rehab and returning to drugs, Houston lost her voice. Can you imagine how terrible it was for a singer like her? After dozens of operations, she finally recovered and it seemed she was getting her career back. Unfortunately, the demons she had battled for so long caught up with her in 2012. Houston, one of the most successful recording artists of all time, passed away at the age of 48 after drowning in a bathtub. She was surrounded by drugs. Three years later, her daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, was found unresponsive in a bathtub in the same horrible way as her mother. Bobby died aged 22 after spending six months in a coma. Brown's life may yet become a tale of redemption, filled with the constant feeling of guilt. However, drug-free after years of therapy, he released a single, Get Out The Way, in early 2011. I'm doing wonderful, Brown said. I'm just moving forward with my life and trying to stay positive at all times. Despite the tragedy, the songs of Whitney Houston will live on with their powerful and beautiful vocals. Thank you for watching. Do you like touching and dramatic celebrity life stories? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be the first to... Thank you for listening.